I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. In recent years, driven by forces such as cost, convenience, and of course COVID, the shopping world has mass migrated online. But on this episode, we'll hear about an innovative retailer that's been growing in e-commerce and expanding into bricks and mortar too, while also keeping an eye on its real-world environmental impact. We're interested in making better things in a better way. It started with better shoes, we've moved into better apparel, and that's sort of our, our sort of mission. That's Travis Boyce, head of global retail operations at Allbirds, the sustainable footwear and apparel retailer. Joining us from Allbirds corporate office in San Francisco, Travis oversees development, design, construction, and just about every aspect of the company's physical spaces. Brands are spending an extraordinary amount of money to acquire customers and bring them into the stores. And that's Laura Barr, a CBRE Senior Vice President who's also based in San Francisco. Laura leads a team with a focus on retail, advising tenants and landlords on space and strategies, counting a range of occupiers and investors among her client base, including Allbirds. We'll talk about the company as both a trendsetter and defier of trends, a retailer that hatched in the digital realm with zero storefronts in 2016, then scaled up to more than 30 in the five years since. We'll talk about in-store experience and environmental impact. More important, how a company can measure and hold itself accountable. Coming up, Allbirds and a conversation on e-commerce and ESG, retail and real estate, That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And this week we are talking about retail, e-commerce, sustainability, and everything related to Allbirds. Travis, tell us a little bit more about how you describe Allbirds to others. Yeah, so sort of at the base level, we were, uh, we're interested in making better things in a better way. It started with better shoes. We've moved into better apparel, and that's sort of our, our sort of mission. And by better way, uh, we mean using sustainable natural materials uh, in a way that has a lower impact on the environment and our planet than, than sort of more traditional options available in those categories. And we started with a simple single wool shoe uh, that was uh, counterintuitive to most to launch with a single product uh, using a material that no one had ever used in footwear. Um, And we've since scaled our portfolio of of both products, but also materials and and had a lot of interesting innovations, both internally and with partners creating uh, a really interesting uh, tree fiber that utilizes uh, uh, sustainably harvested eucalyptus. Uh, We've used uh, a blend of the tree material and the wool material. We developed a, uh, a green EVA, which actually sucks carbon out of the air compared to uh, some of the traditional uh, polymers that are carbon uh, intensive and petroleum based. Um, and we've got a number of other innovations in the pipeline that, that are going to be exciting for us to release and, and add to our stable uh, of, uh, of different ways to create those products. So ultimately, we're about creating these better products in a better way. And, and it's leveraging really interesting natural, novel and uh, sustainable materials. Laura, obviously the last year has been tough sledding for bricks and mortar retail, but our friends at Allbirds are growing. Why do you think that's the case? I think there are groups that are really good at brand building and groups that are really good at retailing and a very small group that are really good at both. And Allbirds is one of those. Um, The 
product is a great product, but the story behind the product is deep and something that um, consumers all over the world engage with. Uh, the brand experience, the store experience that Allbirds creates is really a special one. It's interesting. There's a real connection between physical space and the way our memory is developed. And when we think about experience and retail, which is always kind of over-discussed, there's a huge tie to the way you create a physical experience in a store and the way that memories are created and stored in the human brain. And so if you create the right experience in a physical store, much like Allbirds does, you're much more likely to remember the experience you had, remember the product that you interacted with, and realistically, perhaps a future purchase online, even after a purchase in store. So it's a really big, big part, I think, of their success. So let's go with this word that Laura used, Travis, experience. What is the consumer experience that you want them to get out of your store in, say, Northern California versus, say, Berlin? Is it the same experience, different? Or um, do you uh, try to make it locally uh, focused? Yeah, it's a great question. We try to have some consistent themes and, and aspects of that experience. And so from a visual perspective, you walk into one of our stores anywhere in the world, whether it's Asia, North America, Europe, you will sort of recognize very similar design elements, uh, fixturing, uh, obviously the product. So we try to have consistent visual cues. Um, the actual try-on and experience and the rituals tied to sort of a customer journey, we also try to keep uh, somewhat consistent, and we've found that the actual moment the person puts the shoe on is the make or break moment, and it's usually the aha moment when someone who hasn't tried our product steps into a brand new pair of wool runners for the first time and realizes uh, why they've heard such great things and, and now believes the hype or what they've heard before they step foot in them. Um, and so those types of things we, we sort of hold precious and we, we try to keep those consistent around the globe. And then there's elements that we do adjust and change, and we try to localize some of the Obviously, some of the graphics and, and the copy needs to be translated very obviously in, in different markets based on the language. And then some of the nuances around customers and, and who comes into the store. We have some stores that are very neighborhood, uh, locally focused. And so there's a lot of repeat customers and folks coming in that we get to know and spend a lot of time with over the course of a year as they visit every month, if not more. Um, in other markets, we're heavily tourist-driven, and so um, the pace of the store is different. The interactions are often first-time exposure to the brand versus repeat customers. So we try to tailor that experience depending on the type of customer and a little bit tied to the location and the types of individuals visiting the store, but we definitely have these underlying experiences that we want to remain consistent both visually and as part of the customer journey. I think there's a level of being immersive and carrying through sort of the purpose of the brand using as many of the senses as possible. So physical, it's the build out. What does that actually look like? What is the experience you have entering the store? The level of service, um, you know, it's talked about a lot, but brands are spending an extraordinary amount of money to acquire customers and bring them into the stores. If, in fact, one of the reasons why there was such this significant moment of digitally native brands growing was because there was, for a period of time, ads and targeted ads on social media were much cheaper. Those have gotten much more expensive. And it's, it's extraordinary um, how much some of these brands are spending to convert a customer into a store. You get the customer into the store, that first interaction with an employee is really meaningful in terms of whether or not that person converts. And so that's a really big piece. Obviously, a growing challenge as labor is becoming harder and harder. It's probably among the top two or three 
concerns and pain points we're hearing from all of our tenants, including food and beverage, of course, um, but certainly across uh, global brands. And there, there's so much other, you know, the, the sound, the smell, that you can really do everything to, to engage with a, a customer, even outside of, you know, the future of augmented reality and all of that. Travis, speaking of labor, uh, in our pre-call, you talked about some of the local influencers that you try to use in some of these markets to bring people into the store. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, and, and to Laura's point, the, the cost to acquire customers online has gone up for almost everyone as Facebook and, and Instagram as everyone sort of sees their own feeds get saturated with lots of different brands and products and, and offerings. So for us, the, the retail actually provides an opportunity for us to diversify away from that and to acquire customers more organically and naturally. And that's where our, our ambassadors, are, we call it the All Good Collective, um, and as a, as a program that we started last year but have really leaned into this year as Retail has come back, traffic has come back, there's more comfortability to host events. And so in each market that we're in, tied to each store, we try to find a handful of locally, I will call them influential people, not influencers, because I think there's often some sort of uh, negative connotations potentially with that term, but locally influential people in that sort of city or neighborhood, and it could be a local chef, it could be an artist, it could be a teacher, it could be an athlete, uh, it could be someone who uh, is a sort of social activist and works within their community. So the, the opportunities for us to find someone that has a mission that is aligned with us around sustainability or bettering the communities they're in uh, is someone that we want to be associated with. And, and we try to sort of create a relationship um, as the store is opening or in existing stores, certainly as, as they've been operating, um, to help build an authentic relationship where they can leverage us as a brand to support them if they need space to activate for a lesson or a class or some performance that we're able to help them and give them our space to use for free. And then conversely, we, we hopefully get to meet and introduce ourselves to some of their uh, either users or fans or folks that they engage with and create this really natural and local uh, relationship rather than some big international endorsement plan. We try to keep it very local and leverage each other to, to, to drive awareness towards our causes that we both and typically uh, are, are trying to find are aligned uh, with ours. Speaking of cool people, uh, Laura, let's talk more about uh, some of the uh, cool new concepts you are seeing in some of the more challenged retail locations. Let's call it what it is. San Francisco, New York. Some of the better locations there have been challenged recently. What types of new concepts are you seeing to activate those types of areas? So first, I'd like to point out that I think San Francisco is getting an unfairly bad rap. And if you look back through you know, since the gold rush, the earthquake, you know, all the way through to 01 GFC and today, there's always this running hair on fire. San Francisco's over, tech's over, real estate's over. That's happened over and over and over again. And I would invite anyone who wants to come out and visit, and I will show you why that's not true. Um, and it's not going to happen this time either. But, um, there's a lot of innovation. This happens to be a hotbed of innovation, like so many other global cities. Um, there's also this great moment where, or, well, the moment is actually starting to end because so much of it has been absorbed, but there was a lot of second generation space that was available. And so the difference in upstart capital required for brands to come in and populate those to activate them was a lot different. Um, and that's, I think, allowed for some more interesting concepts to arrive, different kinds of use of space, different experimentation, for example, on the food and beverage side with, you know, how do you play with, you know, delivery, which has a very different margin level than dine-in, um, and so on. 
And I think that is also accelerating a trend we saw start well before the pandemic. This idea we've been writing about for you know well over a year and talking about it long before, but retail as a service. And so the right property operators and investors are coming in and realizing that they can decrease their lease up time. And you know, this doesn't work for every hold period, but decrease your lease up time and increase the quality of tenant, which likely means you're increasing their sales volume, which means you're increasing your NOI because rents are really a factor of sales volume. And doing that by shifting the way that risk is proportioned in a way. So you are investing far more upfront, but you're getting a tenant that is likely much stickier, is going to do much better, and you're avoiding fixing the same problem every three or four years. It's something we're, we're really excited about. Travis, I think Laura brought up a really important concept, which is the sharing of risk between the landlord and the tenant and how that's evolving. And we talked about uh, how you are both an e-commerce and a bricks and mortar company. Um, some landlords might want to be your partner more than your landlord and share in some of your internet sales. Um, has that come up in some of your negotiations? Yeah, it certainly has. And I think there's, again, there's clearly sort of different schools of thought on how it should be figured out. And there's certainly no standard, um, as there are for a lot of other terms in the lease, and I'm sure over time has got, have gotten more standardized. So I think this one still has some room to be figured out and maybe hopefully or some point get standardized. From our perspective, um, we agree. Percentage rent has been a sort of a factor in a number. I'm the newbie here in the real estate world, but I'm sure it's been around for quite some time and certainly something that we consider depending on the type of lease and where we are. But we want to limit our contribution or, or how, how much we, we might ultimately pay. And in our view as a brand that is been growing as fast as we have uh, can prove the sort of the drive we've been built to, whether it's a neighborhood or a mall. Um, ultimately, we think that, yeah, there's a certain capped or amount that is probably what the, the landlord deserves in excess of a base rent. And so we're totally comfortable with that. I think um, getting technical, I think the uncapped or unconstrained percentage rent element is probably where we feel that if we're performing to that level, we might actually be the one that maybe is a bit of us having a sort of, a, I don't know if ego is the right word, or just belief in our brand. Maybe we are ultimately providing a bit more value to the property or to the landlord. And so I think for us, um, we're comfortable having the conversation. There's also all the nuance around ship from store, buy in line, pick up in store, an order placed in store, but ship from our warehouse. Um, all those different permutations of the omni-channel experience um, that I think there's some technical accounting rules that um, we sort of default to and how we recognize revenue ourselves. Um, but it's a conversation we're having with each landlord and we don't have hard and fast rules, I'd say. And, and so I don't know if that's too diplomatic of an answer for what you wanted on that, but I think it is true. We, we've had different negotiations with every landlord and frankly, on a street deal, probably none. And in a mall, if we feel that it's a high... Uh, high quality and a mall that is uh, helping drive awareness uh, and traffic to our, our brand, then we're open to it. We're, we're not trying to sort of uh, screw over any landlords. Certainly that's not our MO. And, and frankly, even during the pandemic, we took a very modest and moderate approach in terms of how we negotiate and dealt with landlords on the subjects of rent and adjustments to leasing and things like that. We've always been pretty practical, um, but try to be fair. And, and ultimately, we, we have confidence in our brand and believe ult at the end of the day that, that we're probably a great brand and tenant for them to have. And, and we want to make sure that that's being recognized in the negotiation. Very diplomatically done, Travis. Uh, thank you very much for that. But Laura, Travis brought up an interesting point about the different retail locations that Allbirds considers, not just by city, but also by format, whether it be street front or mall. Let's talk generically for a moment about all tenants. How do you decide 
which retail format is right for them. So it ultimately depends on the immediate goal of that location or the series of locations during a certain period of growth. Are you looking for top line revenue? Are you looking for profit? And how much of this needs to drive brand impact? Because some streets that hit all of those things, but you know, a street deal that's really cool, but maybe more up and coming, but it's going to really um, be impactful to the way a brand is perceived can have a really serious value. But it might be in a given market, and this is pretty common, that you have a really cool street that's a little riskier in terms of sales. You have a mall that you know is going to be exceptional in terms of sales, but is not necessarily going to be helpful from a brand perspective. That's one piece. I think the other, and we're seeing plenty of malls and have been for years, try to move forward with more interesting components, redevelopments. There are plenty of tenants who would refuse to go interior, and that's part of it. It also allows for a more, arguably, more neighborhood experience. And so that's kind of sits in the middle. That's a big part of the way that's looked at. Well, one of the things you mentioned, while there are some tenants that uh, prefer the outdoor experience, you also mentioned some of them like malls. And I think that's good news for mall owners out there because there's been a lot of negative things said about malls recently. So, Travis, let's turn to you. Um, Would you consider malls? And what other forms of retail are most attractive to Allbirds? Yes, we, we actually will take a look at, at a lot of different formats ourselves and exist in a number of formats. Frankly, um, all four of our stores in mainland China are enclosed malls, somewhat traditional, and that sort of is uh, uh, the path we chose there and, and are some of the highest traffic locations in the world, frankly. Uh, in the U.S., it's been a little bit more balanced and mixed, and our first stores were high streets in San Francisco and New York, in Soho and in Jackson Square, sort of the cooler neighborhoods. And um, again, to Laura's point, they also happen to be, for us, very high traffic. Traffic, very high volume and very, uh, very successful financially, let alone um, cool. And so that was the sort of the unique aspect there. And as we've ex- expanded our portfolio, uh, we're not against malls. We have stores uh, opening in Cherry Creek, which is an enclosed mall later this year. Um, we have a, star- a store opening in Garden State Plaza, which is an enclosed mall later this year. So we're not against it. And we have a number of lifestyle centers uh, that I guess probably if there's, like, without stereotyping the cool factor of an asset class, maybe sit in the middle if you've got a cool outdoor lifestyle style center, UTC in San Diego, Century City uh, in, in Los Angeles. Um, those types of, of locations uh, we are really excited about and often have that density of traffic uh, can still be uh, a really engaging and dynamic environment, um, uh, which feels more like a neighborhood. I, w- I would agree with Laura's point there. Um, but then we still are certainly going after the urban and sort of street locations more broadly. And that's urban locations like we've opened in Soho uh, and have opened more recently in places like Walnut Street in Philadelphia and um, in downtown North Loop, Minneapolis. Um, But it also means some of the more suburban locations on the high street that we find are interesting because there's uh, a high density of our existing customers. We know that from e-commerce. They're often in cities that are aligned with our values, are the types of customers that we're targeting. And those are places like a Boulder, Colorado, which you can imagine that the types of customers that we have there are the exact people that um, we've been seeking and looking for uh, who enjoy the outdoors, they care about the environment. Um, And so for us, a store in a city like that, we put that even ahead of Denver. Um, Another good example would be Pasadena and sort of the suburbs of Los Angeles, a great high street location. It's not uh, LA proper, but a great alignment with the local population and and our values and our mission. So um, long story short, we're we're open to all asset types and all types of locations, but we are uh, very thoughtful and intentional about where we pick them within those different categories. 
Another great answer, Travis, and I uh, think you just earned yourself a weekly take mug because that was the most uses of the word cool in an answer I think we've received yet uh, on this show. I'll take it. But going back to something you said earlier, Travis, uh, you talked about eucalyptus leaves being a uh, piece of your product or the, the way that your product is produced. Uh, the only thing I knew about eucalyptus leaves prior to the show was that koala bears uh, like to eat them. But apparently they have a much more dynamic use. But let's turn now to your product. Because I think now when we look at our real estate, we look at it, the word that we use is holistically. From the manufacturing site uh, and in your case, to uh, being on people's feet as shoes. Uh, so talk about the holistic approach you take to your product, and then Laura will ask you the same question about others who might take a similar approach. Yeah, ultimately, we're, we're trying to um, build products that the consumer needs and wants. And uh, I think one might argue, we, we launched a T-shirt last year, and did the world need another T-shirt? I think that's a question that, that we, we ask ourselves, but we felt that, hey, we've got a novel material that's sustainable and has a lower impact on the environment than almost anything else out there. And we were excited about introducing a product that might otherwise feel is, is entering a saturated market. So at the, at the baseline, that's the question we're asking ourselves every time we build something new is, um, why does the world need this? Um, and it is often uh, because of the way we're making it and how we're making it and how we're reducing the impact on the world relative to other offerings out there in that same category. Um, as we think about the general product development pipeline, um, there's a lot of different things we do. We, we have a massive consumer insights uh, part of our business that is constantly mining information and talking with our customers in store, online, in focus groups, uh, informally, anecdotally, but anecdotally, but also in a very data-driven and quantitative way so that we understand uh, both our existing product and how we can improve it and also where we need to chart our path for future products. And that becomes a huge uh, input to our development process. I think we also have an element of, hey, we, we, we have some really incredibly talented product development folks and product design folks and product strategy folks um, that are some of, I think, the best in the industry and have started to build out a roadmap and pipeline of products that I could not be more excited about. Uh, and I think we've slowly started to turn up the pace uh, with which we launch products. I think we never want to be in the position where we are just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. And we may not always get it right, but we need to ask ourselves and have that kind of intentionality with our product launch. And again, that holistic approach to our offering and to our merchandising. Um, and so we do take a very thoughtful and careful approach, but we're going to start and uh, start launching some more products. I'm extremely excited about it. Um, we're recording this today, but there'll be a, uh, I can probably say there'll be a launch tomorrow. That is going to be a whole new category for us. And, and by the time this releases, it'll be out in the public in the world. So uh, it's super exciting. And one that, um, again, we will start to introduce some really exciting products that will build out our portfolio beyond what has been predominantly footwear with some light sort of uh, dipping of the toes into apparel. We'll, we'll go more uh, uh, up uh, uh, into the apparel world. And, and I'm really excited about that. Cool. Can't wait. See that? I, I'm using your word now, Travis. Cool. So, Laura, <laughs> let's go back to what I just said a moment ago about this end-to-end, -end, the holistic approach to products. I'm getting the questions every day in the uh, office sector, uh, how tenants are demanding it. I'm hearing it from investors demanding ESG compliance in a whole host of ways. One of them is this holistic look at the products themselves, where they're made, how far away from the site they're made. Laura, are you hearing these questions? And what kind of questions are you hearing on the ESG front? 
Absolutely. I mean, so much of this is, I mean, you've talked about previously, is driven by uh, consumption habits and preferences, especially with millennials and Gen Z. Um, and there are many brands who are kind of box checking, and there are brands like Allbirds um, who are going a lot deeper. I mean, having a carbon footprint listed on the product is pretty special, even just from an awareness perspective. Um, so there, there's a lot of that. I think it's even on the flip side, I think on the landlord leasing side, there's, I think, some attention to be paid for how outreach is done for leasing and a thoughtfulness around which brands, which companies, which entrepreneurs uh, we're reaching out to as, uh, you know, a company that does a lot of leasing on the landlord side as well. And we as a team have been trying to take a step back and think through what our process is, who we're reaching out to, how we're finding those groups and making sure that we're actually being inclusive in the groups we're reaching out to, not just because it's important to be inclusive, but because there are so many extraordinary entrepreneurs who may not have the same access to connections or capital. It's a really important question, and we're so happy that it's getting more airtime. So Travis, let's go back to something you mentioned earlier about how data-driven you are. But one of the things that we've been trying to do with our traditional real estate clients is measure the um, carbon footprint, measure waste, measure energy usage. Um, not always um, black and white, um, particularly when you're dealing with complex products. So can you give us some insight on how you measure that thing? Yeah, so we, we actually, we publicized uh, a carbon footprint calculator after we built it ourselves from scratch. And uh, as we've done with other things uh, in the past, opened it up and sort of gave it away for free to whoever wanted to use it. It's on our website and available to anyone in any company. It's probably more geared towards a physical product brand as opposed to maybe a landlord. But um, I think the concept in, in itself is what's most important for us. It's measuring every aspect of, of our supply chain. Um, on the product side, it's it's sort of the raw materials. It's the, the manufacturing and all that goes into that. It's the transportation logistics, which we've started to include. It's the whole picture of the product and then we take that that score, which is the amount of carbon used, and we, to Laura's point, we place it front and center on the packaging or on the label. Um, and it's for our own accountability so that hopefully over time, customers will see that number come down on the same product as we improve the sustainability. But it's also education as, as people are uh, learning and caring more about these concepts at a high level. This gives them something that they can really dig into and understand and hopefully start to quantify their own impact in other ways. And I'd say ultimately our goal, and, and I think is, is sort of the, the simplification of it, but it resonates with most people, is um, measure it. And you have to measure it to understand the impact. So you measure it and understand it, and uh, you work to uh, reduce it uh, and do whatever you can. And for us, that's continuous improvement of our existing products, working across the supply chain end to end, even in stores, finding um, more sustainable fixtures, uh, finding appliances that are sustainable in the future, working uh, to develop sustainable energy and renewable energy sources to power our buildings. Um, and then for us on the tail end, we offset everything at Allbirds. So um, we are a carbon neutral company um, and every little bit of carbon that we can measure and see, we offset each year so that we're carbon neutral. And that includes our travel, our office and headquarters, it's not just the product. We offset the entire business and it's something pretty special and something, again, over time, we hope that we have to offset less and less because we've made that product that much more sustainable as we try to approach the, maybe some would say impossible, but for us, it's just a, a goal to go after is a actual carbon impact of zero. So that's what we strive for. And until then, we will offset 
uh, our, our carbon uh, each year. And, and that's something that we do as a brand. But for others, figure out how to measure it. Start and just get simple and measure certain elements of the biggest impacts in your business and start to reduce that over time. Measure, reduce it. And if you can or are able, offset it in the meantime. That awareness, that offsetting, that whole piece, I mean, retail by its nature is, you know, there's a real tension between sustainability and retail. This idea of producing new products to be consistently consumed. The awareness of how much that is impacting the environment and then translating that into what it would take to offset it is a huge step in the direction of figuring out how to address the impact that retail has. It's, it's hard to talk about this without naming that elephant. That's the, the nature and history of this industry. I will also say we are not perfect and we're far from it, but we, we want to improve in every way from a sustainability standpoint. And that's what we task ourselves with doing. Uh, and that's reducing our footprint and our impact on the world. And again, we're not perfect. We're nowhere near it, but we're constantly working to improve it and reduce that impact on the planet. And we'll make sure to label it and hold ourselves accountable um, so that it's not a sort of black box that we say we're doing something and no one knows. We really want to be uh, uh, sort of open and, and honest and accountable to our customers and to Mother Earth. There you go. Well, I was a labor major at the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. I remember back in uh, the first case study we did was uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1912 in New York City, uh, which changed the laws on how you manufacture stuff in the United States. It uh, had impact on child labor laws and other things like that. Uh, But what I found interesting about that case study versus fast-forwarding 110 years later today is that ultimately started with tragedy and turned into different laws. But really what we're seeing today is companies like yours are doing it voluntarily, not from a regulatory standpoint. There may be some regulations around it, but really it is self-motivated rather than driven by government regulations. Would you agree with that, uh, Travis? Totally. We believe it's, one, the right thing to do, and and we encourage others to follow in our footsteps. And I'll also say, um, we're tiny. We're a drop in the bucket in this industry now. We hope to grow and be more than a drop in the bucket, but our hope is that we can shine a light on how to uh, be more sustainable, how to reduce your impact, and and have others feel the same way. Not only do we think it's the right thing, we we think it's what customers want, and so that's a benefit to our businesses. The consumer uh, 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 sort of trends have uh, started to focus more on on conscious consumption, understanding where their products came from, ideally reducing their impact, uh, that, that, that suits us well from a business perspective. But we did it and we started doing it. And, and Joey and Tim built this business from the beginning because they viewed it as the right thing to do. And, and that will continue to be our North Star. But I think consumers more and more each and every day are deciding and putting their money uh, into products that they consume, that they, they understand a little bit more and they know where they came from and they feel good about them. We're going to ask them for some concluding comments now. I'm going to start with you, Laura. I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball five years from now. Crystal ball. San Francisco, other markets like it. Looking back, how has San Francisco and similar markets evolved? What's changed? San Francisco and the Bay Area remain an innovation capital, if not the innovation capital. There's plenty of talent ready to, you know, jump on tough problems, of which we have many. Um, We're seeing growth in, obviously, biotech, autonomous vehicles and mobility in general, education tech. And we saw $166 in venture funding, which is a record year. 34% of that flowed into the Bay Area. That is a massive amount of funding. We had 36 companies go public in like a six-month period right around the start of the year. 
for a total of almost half a trillion in market value. That's 7,000 new millionaires alone in San Francisco. And that's certainly not the answer to making the city a better place. But there are all these data points that are getting overshadowed by this, you know, easy to publish story of, you know, people moving to other great markets. Um, But if you look at the data, most of the people who left the city of San Francisco moved to the suburbs around San Francisco. So looking forward to a strong next five years and a lot of growth, a lot of addressing of issues that need to be addressed as well. Certainly San Francisco has its challenges, but I'm optimistic. Travis, two questions. One, you mentioned not just San Francisco, Berlin, New York, you mentioned Boulder, you mentioned Pasadena, you mentioned smaller cities. What kind of smaller cities might be on your radar? You don't have to say it specifically, but what are their characteristics? Uh, and then your your very same crystal ball. Looking back, say five years from now, looking back, where do you see Allbirds and how has its retail strategy evolved? For first, the, the cities that we're attracted to that tend to be uh, sort of smaller, a couple things. One, maybe not in their control, is, is how we've performed there from an e-commerce perspective. So our existing customer base in that market is is a huge indicator for us that we'll be successful on the retail side. Um, and we see that happen where we've launched stores in markets that have successful uh, e-commerce customer bases. I'd say the other and what made a city like Boulder or a city like Pasadena uh, really exciting for us is, again, um, the, the population that lives there and and their values and what they care about. It often may be a store that has a, a, a lot of outdoor support and outdoor activities uh, that they care about. The environment is uh, often an indicator that our, we will be successful. And so I, I don't think there's any sort of secret or special sort of equation that we're looking to in each of those markets. And uh, we take, uh, again, a very sort of thoughtful and intentional approach based on both the data of our existing customer base and uh, where our customers are. And then we want to understand the communities we're entering and are the values of the population or the people that live there aligned with what we're trying to do. And and particularly in a smaller market where there may not be as many uh, total uh, footsteps uh, to go after, we want to make sure they're folks that we feel strongly are going to be aligned and interested in our brand if they're not already. Well, speaking of footsteps, I went through your brands, the the Tree Runner, Piper, Dasher, Lounger, Skipper, Mizzle, Toppers, Runner-Up, Mizzler, Dasher, Mizzler, and Fluffs. So, Laura, which of those are your favorites? Travis, which ones are your favorites? And are you wearing one of them today? Tree Runners for me. Short answer. I'm wearing an unreleased prototype, so I can't say that one. I'll tease that out, but I can't say which one I'm wearing right now. <laughs> My current favorite is actually the Tree Piper right now from our release product. So a, a casual shoe, uh, uh, very sort of reminiscent of some classic styles from other brands, but uh, I love that as a nice casual summer shoe. So on behalf of the Weekly Take, what a great conversation with Travis Boyce, head of global retail operations from Allbirds. Travis, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. And then Laura Barr. Senior Vice President at CBRE, one of our San Francisco truly great colleagues, friends, uh, retail professionals. Laura, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Spencer. For more about Allbirds and our guests, Travis Boyce and Laura Barr, please check out our website at cbre.com slash the weekly take. There's lots of other content there as well, including information on past episodes and what's to come. Please also share the show and subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen.
We'll be back next week as we close in on the end of summer travel season and look to the horizon with Stephanie Lenartz, the president of Marriott International. For now, thanks for spending your time with us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, and be well.